Turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. We have a very encouraging word from Jesus to sit in this morning. And I'm grateful for it because there's been a lot of rebukes from Jesus to these different churches as we're sitting in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. Uh, The harshest rebukes come to Sardis and to Laodicea, and right in the middle of the letters to those churches is this breath of fresh air as Jesus is addressing the church of Philadelphia. So let's read through this. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7 says, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, He who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God, And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear to hear, well, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Philadelphia means brotherly love. Our Philadelphia here in America, known as the city of brotherly love. Does Philadelphia live up to uh, its namesake? I'm sure in some ways. Calvary Chapel Philadelphia is an awesome congregation. The gospel is being shared in that community, no doubt. But there's a lot of darkness in this city of brotherly love that would seem to be the antithesis of that. The same thing as we sit in, in this community. So Philadelphia is named after the guy that founded the city. So Philadelphus was his nickname, and that's where the city gets its name from. But when you look at each one of these communities, it seems as though as often the name of a person, the name of a community, often it has a lot of revelation in regards to what's going on in that heart or what's going on in that community. And a lot can be, uh, you can sit in each one of the names of these congregations and you can, you can sit in that application and teaching. But again, as Jesus is addressing this, this community, he's talking to a community just like all the others that are sitting in 
Roman and Greek idolatry and everything that's uh, a part of it. Uh, where Philadelphia is located, it was very fertile ground. It was, uh, its main crop is going to be grapes. In that culture, you, you sit in wine, you know, you sit in the god of wine who is Dionysus and all the different wickedness that's associated with that worship. So that's what this community looks like. But what I wanted to sit in is this, this as Jesus is addressing this community, um, we sit in this idea that there must be a lot of brotherly love going on within the congregation. And again, there's no word of rebuke. The Lord knows their works. He knows that they're holding on to the word. They're holding on to the name of Jesus. In that, there has to be an expression of love for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And what I want to do, I just want to spend a few minutes. There's, there's four passages that we're going to look at. So turn to Romans chapter 12 to begin with. Just to give a, a, uh, a rich flavor for not just the idea of what it means to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, but all the other ideas that are attached to it. Because again, as we sit in different uh, words and definitions that define God, that define us as followers of God, that define those who are in opposition to God, none of these words sit in isolation. They're, they don't sit on their own. They're, it's a holistic picture. So in Romans chapter 12, Paul has spent this entire letter defining the doctrine of Jesus' grace. In my section here in my Bible, it's got a heading that says, Behave like a Christian. So Romans 12, verse 9, says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another, and here's our word, with brotherly love. Look at all the different things that are attached to this. Being without hypocrisy, being distant, abhorring what is evil, and clinging, holding on to what is good. You know what it's like to be kind and affectionate towards another human being? With a, with a love that you'd have for your physical brother or sister. Welcome to the body of Christ. We are a family. Listen to the rest of this. In honor, giving preference to one another. It means as I love you as my sibling, I'm to look at you and act towards you in a way that's honorable towards you and not towards myself. Not being idle, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. All of these are an expression of brotherly love. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. But Paul, I am so smart. 
Don't be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I'll link that to all those different promises of overcoming. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, picking up in verse 9. So 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 9 says, But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are, who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and uh, that you may lack nothing. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter 1. This is great. Beginning in verse 22. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit. And hold on to that word purified in truth. We'll come back to that when we get back into Revelation. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the Word of God which lives and abides forever. Because... All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word by which the gospel was preached to you. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Oh boy, have we ever. One more, Second Peter. Chapter 1, verse 5. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith. Virtue, to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, 
There's our word, brotherly kindness. To brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who, is, he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, back to Revelation. I wanted to sit in again just the variety. Hello. Welcome to a tin box. It gets loud in here. So I'm not yelling at you just to get over the sound of the rain. Chris, this is all your fault. You were uh, singing about the flood and the rivers of heaven pouring down the Holy Spirit. Here you go. Can you hear anything? <laughs> All right, gentlemen, crank it up just a little bit for help. <laughs> All right. This city does not have the reputation for all of these attributes of brotherly love. But believers who have been transformed by Jesus Christ do. And again, just something as simple as last night, a gathering together, sharing a meal, everybody participating in the preparation of it, the setting up, tearing down, cleaning, the fellowship, listening to words about who our Savior is. All those, all those different things are facets of our love for one another. As you spend time in steadfastly praying to God in your own relationship with Him, that is an expression not just of your love for God, but it's an expression of your love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. As you bring them to the Lord and as you bring yourself and present yourself to the Lord. So I brought up all those passages just for further meditation on your own, on your own relationship for the Lord to really bring about the expression of what it means to love your siblings in Jesus according to his holiness and according to his truth. And that's what we want to sit in right now. So Jesus defines himself as the one who is holy and the one who is true. Now, look around the room. Can you claim that title for yourself or for any other human being that you know? I mean, think, listen, listen to the words that he is saying. Thus says he who is holy. He's pure. He's clean, without blemish, without spot, without perversion, without sin, without darkness, without evil. Jesus Christ is holy. True? Yes or no? If it is not true, 
It is, it's the stupidest sentence ever. I can't say those words independent of my relationship with Christ. I can say that I am holy because He is holy. And that's exactly the command that God has given to us. Be holy for I am holy. And the holiness that my purity, my cleanliness, my without sin, my without darkness, my without evil is only based upon who He is, His nature, His character. What about truth? Can you look at the person that's sitting next to you and say that that person represents truth? Always. Not just the information that is communicated that, uh, between the difference between what is true and what is false. Yes, it has that idea, but the main emphasis when Jesus is saying, I am true, is I am not fake. I am real, as he is revealing himself and spread. I mean, these are declarations that he is saying, I am God. He is good, he is holy, he is true. Those statements ought to set us back into our seats as we meditate and contemplate who he is. When you open up the Gospels and you start reading through the accounts that we have about who he is, what he taught, what he did, how he did it, every single description that we have about him, I challenge you, go find something wrong. Go find something in the Gospels where what Jesus said, that's not true. That's a lie. That's not holy. That's not good. That's not clean. That's evil, that's dark, that's wicked. And you go sit in everything that he said and everything that he did, and it, is all, it encompasses, he's holy. And every interaction, every word that he taught, every time that he stepped into a synagogue and opened up the Old Testament and taught, every time that he stepped into a home, every time he was in the marketplace, when he was on the hillside, when he was on the shore of Galilee, when he was in Jerusalem, when he was in Samaria, when he was in Tyre and Sidon, everywhere he went, he was holy and he was true. And it's, it's when we have this realization and understanding in that perspective that it, he keeps us in this position of awe and reverence and astonishment. We're told that when Jesus, when he steps into different scenarios and he teaches, what does the Bible tell us about what the people were thinking? They were astonished. They were astonished at the words of his grace. They were astonished at the authority of his teaching. He said that even if you don't believe the words that are coming out of my mouth, believe the works that he was performing to demonstrate that he was and is and always will be the Holy One of God and the true one. It's just, it's a, when I have that truth in my mind, I'm in a very good position in my relationship with Jesus because I have full trust in him for all things in my life. I'm filled with joy, I'm filled with rejoicing, I'm filled with hope, I'm filled with confidence, I'm filled with his light, his truth, his purity. It's an awesome position. And not only does he say, I'm the holy one, and I'm the true one, he says, I'm the one who has the key of David. Well, what is that? Turn to Isaiah 
chapter 22. And this prophecy in Isaiah gives us a very clear definition to what Jesus is saying. So remember in Isaiah 9 when it's declaring uh, that unto us a child will be born. It says that the government will be upon his shoulders. So this key is going to be upon his shoulder. When Peter in Matthew 16 confesses that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, that he is the son of the living God, Jesus tells Peter that he is going to give to him the key of heaven and hell. This, this position of authority, this position to be able to lock and deny access and the position to be able to unlock and provide an open access. Listen to this prophecy. This is Isaiah chapter 22, beginning verse 15 says, Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Go, proceed to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the house. So this is a steward over the house of the king, Hezekiah at the time. And say, What have you here? And whom have you here? That you have hewn a sepulcher here, and he who hews it hews himself a sepulcher on high, who carves a tomb for himself in a rock. Indeed, the Lord will throw you away violently, O mighty man, and will surely seize you. So this steward who has these keys and this authority, this stewardship over the house, house of David in this context, is exalting himself, providing himself a, a tomb worthy of a king. God is providing a judgment against him. The Lord will throw you away violently, O mighty man, and will surely seize you. He will surely turn violently and toss you like a ball into a large country. There you shall die, and there your glorious chariots shall be the shame of your master's house. So I will drive you out of your office, and from your position, he will pull you down. Then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. Now, this is a very real uh, occurrence. These are real individuals uh, where this occurred in that time in history. As you sit in it prophetically, this, this pronouncement in regards to Eliakim, Jesus is pointing back to this prophecy saying, I am the one who has this key. So listen to what God says to Eliakim. I will clothe him with your robe, the robe of this steward, and strengthen him with your belts. Remember in uh, Revelation 1, Jesus is clothed in this garment. He is clothed with this belt around his chest, imagery of strength, imagery of his stewardship, imagery of his priesthood. I will commit your responsibility into his hands. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder. So he shall open and no one shall shut, and he shall shut and no one shall open. I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place, and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. So listen to the imagery. When you have a coat hook, a peg in the wall, what hangs on it? 
something weighty. You hang your coat on it. You hang your purse on it. Here, God is saying this, I'm going to fasten this man, Eliakim, as a peg, that all of this authority is going to hang on him. This is the, the position of a steward that is being granted to Eliakim in David's house. And Jesus is seizing on this prophecy saying, all of the authority of the kingdom of God is upon my shoulder. I have the key. I have the key of heaven. I have the key of hell. I have the key that this key literally as a steward to the king, this key, this position of authority, you have access to the treasury of the king. Like in my job, I have, I have access to a lot of different individuals and entities, bank accounts. I have key, I have the authority to write a check and to put deposits into and to take money out of. With that comes responsibility, with it comes stewardship. And Jesus is saying, I have the key of the kingdom of God, the very throne of David. I allow into and have a allow access to the treasury of that kingdom. It's all through Jesus Christ. And I deny access to that treasury and who does not come to that kingdom through Jesus Christ. So now I'll turn back to Revelation 3. These are the terms that Jesus is using to identify himself to the church of Philadelphia. To the letters of the other churches, he picks up on themes in, from Revelation 1. He picks up on specific themes. So this one to the church of Philadelphia it's like he's picking up all of them at the same time, his holiness encompassing all of his attributes. The idea that he is the true one, the idea that all of the authority of God's kingdom is his. Remember, as he, the last words to the disciples, as he commands them to go into all the world, to make disciples, to preach the gospel, to teach them to obey his commands. He introduces that section that the Great Commission, he says, all authority has been given to me. And here, under, as we are under his authority, is granted to us for us to be able to go out and be holy on his behalf, to speak true words on his behalf, to allow access to his kingdom, to all Whosoever will come in the name of Jesus. But if you don't come in the name of Jesus, we have the authority to restrict any individual access from the kingdom of heaven because he's told us the only way is through Christ. So when he says, now these are the words of this individual, of the very, the God of gods, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, he who is holy, he who is true, he who has all authority, this is what he says. I know you. I know your works, and I want you to see something. This is, a, this is his command to the church of Philadelphia. This is his command to us. I've said before you an open door that nobody can close. And the specific context of an open door in the New Testament is the open door of evangelism. It's the open door. You have an open door by your God, by who he is, in his holiness, in his truth, in his authority, you have an open door which stands open before you always to preach his word. 
And it may be to an ear that won't hear. It may be to an ear that will hear. It may be to the masses. It may be to an individual and everything in between. Jesus has set before us an open door. Again, there are times in our lives where it feels like we're banging our head against a closed door, right? But the, the God clearly provides uh, hindrances in our lives. He allows there to be roadblocks. Sometimes he wants us to persevere and to keep going. We're supposed to keep knocking until he opens that door. Other times he is redirecting us. But the, the emphasis upon what Jesus is teaching here, the application of what he is teaching, the encouragement that he is giving to us is that there is always an open door of opportunity before you to share the truth about who Jesus Christ is to anybody who is willing to listen. He says, you have, listen to these things that this congregation has. You have a little strength. You've kept my word. You have not denied my name. You have a little strength. It's literally, you have little strength. You have micro strength, microscopic strength. So is that encouraging? Is it, is it encouraging to hear God tell you that you're a wuss? Are you weak? Are you weak when it comes to temptation, when it comes to knowledge, when it comes to persecution, when it comes to suffering, when it comes to knowing what to do, when it comes to wisdom? Are you weak? I am. I feel pathetically weak often. And in Paul's encouragement in 2 Corinthians 12, Jesus gives this incredible declaration to Paul. He says, Paul, my grace is all you need. It's sufficient. For in your weakness, quote it for me. In weakness, what does it say? My strength is made perfect in weakness. There we go. Thank you. His strength, his power, his holiness, his truth is made perfect in us through that understanding of our weakness. We come to him as beggars. We come to him in brokenness. We come to him in weakness. We come to him without information, without wisdom, without knowledge, without strength, without ability. We come to him without. And what does he give to us? Access to his treasury. As the children of God, we have access to his presence, to his throne room, to his power, to his holiness, to all that he is, he, in, he invites us in. You have little strength and that is the best position that we can be in as his children because then that's when we're strong we can rejoice in our weaknesses we can rejoice in our sicknesses and in our infirmities in all of our lack why because that's when he demonstrates his power to us he demonstrates his authority he demonstrates that he truly does have the keys he demonstrates his holiness his truth he demonstrates his provision he demonstrates his love you felt these things before? When you have nowhere to turn, you don't want to turn anywhere else, and you turn to Jesus, and he provides for you in that moment, in that circumstance, how strong do you feel? 
You, you just got taken out of that miry pit that you can't get out of, and he just places you on this broad path on the highest of heights, and all you can do is what? You're flooded with joy. You're sustained by his peace. You're overwhelmed by his mercy. You sit there in humility. And you say, God, who am I? I'm, so, I'm such a rotten child sometimes. And you were so gracious and you were so good and you were so wonderful. Nothing can overcome me other than your love. Nothing can snatch me out of your hands. A lot of this is the strength, it comes from him. But our knowledge of him, our understanding from him, it comes through holding on to and guarding and keeping his word. This is why we teach verse by verse. This is why as often as we gather together, we're going to sit in the doctrine, the teaching of Jesus. When we sit in the apostles' doctrine, when we sit in the apostles' teaching, they're just, they're imitating what they heard the great teacher say. We hold on to his word. We keep his word. We trust in his word. We're overwhelmed by his word. It gives us that confidence to not deny his name. Our culture right now wants you to deny Jesus' name. Our culture right now, they want you to turn your back on his truth, on who he is, on his holiness, and to go and play and do what everybody else is doing. And it's not just our culture. It's, it's been the satanic culture for all times, listening to his lies, his deception, his power, his authority, his twistings. This is what's the, the constant bait for us to turn away. But here he gives, us the, gives them this encouragement that those, they could be even naming my name, but they're really this gathering, the synagogue of Satan. He calls the Jews in this context the synagogue of Satan because they're not abiding in what is true. They're abiding in what is false and what has been twisted into false doctrine and false teaching and false religion. Those who are false that are seeking to persecute you, they claim to know God, but they're lying. He says, and again, this is, the, this is a command for us to see that he is going to make these individuals come to the church one day and worship, not worship the church, but to bow down in submission to the recognition of Jesus' love for humanity and his love specifically for those who turn away from all and latch onto Jesus, regardless of what that cost looked like. This encouragement, how they've not only, not only they have little strength, they're strong in Jesus, they've kept his word, they've not denied his name, they have kept his command, his command to keep going. This is one of the, the wonderful things about knowing who he is. The road ahead often is, it's foggy, it's unknown. The imagination imagines all different kinds of horrors and dangers and what if this happens and what if that happens if we continue to follow Jesus. But we have that constant, ex, constant exhortation for him, child, keep going. Keep trusting me. Keep listening for me. I am not here to destroy you. 
I may be here to remove things from you. I am here to conform you into my image. Some of that uh, conformity process, it's going to be painful. It's going to hurt. It's going to feel like a wound is being ripped open. But I'm here to heal you and to love you. Keep persevering. Keep going ahead. Look at this promise. I will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. This becomes a really important um, contextual point in Revelation. So in context, as we sit in Revelation, the hour of trial, the time of testing that is going to come upon the whole world is the information that's going to be revealed in chapters 6 through 19 of Revelation. So he's given a promise to the church that because you have obeyed my command to persevere in this relationship, salvation in Jesus Christ, I am going to keep you from this specific hour of testing. Because this is not a testing that he is bringing into the world to test believers. This is a test that he is bringing into the world to test unbelievers. And the main point to pick up in this that's going to carry forward through the rest of Revelation is this title, Those Who Dwell on the Earth. It's going to come up eight or nine more times as we go through Revelation. Every time it refers to those who dwell on the earth, it is referring to unbelievers. Again, this is what Revelation is all about. Jesus is revealing who he is, his nature, and his character. And he is offering words of revelation, words of encouragement, words of rebuke, words of promise to those who turn from the world, who turn from themselves, and turn to him for salvation, for deliverance, ultimately from death, and then access into the kingdom of God for all eternity. This is a word of good news, and it's also a word, it's also a word of horrors, of all of the descriptions that are going to come in regards to testing humanity. The point of those tests is to cause humanity to turn to Jesus because he is coming and he gives humanity every opportunity to turn away from their sin and to turn to him. And this ends up conveying this idea that he is going to seize us, that he is going to rapture us out before that time of him pouring out his wrath on those who dwell on the earth. Again, not on believers. And then as we travel after the church is removed, we're going to sit in this idea further. As people, as human beings turn towards God in repentance in this time, there is salvation that comes about. There is going to be martyrdom that comes about, and there is going to be a specific sealing that comes about so that the gospel will, be, can, will continue to be proclaimed even as Satan's puppet, the Antichrist, has ultimate authority on earth. Jesus, behold, another, again, multiple times. This is the fourth time this imperative that he wants us to see something. He wants us to have this constant reminder, child, I'm coming quickly. Look for me. Hold fast to what you have. And what do you have? You have his strength. You have his word. You have his name. You have his commands. Ultimately, 
you have Jesus. No one is going to take your crown. The promise, he who overcomes, always through faith in Jesus Christ. Listen to this. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And you go sit in, you know, the Greco-Roman world and all their different temples, they have these massive pillars that are holding up the roofs of these buildings. And Jesus, they're, 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 it's, it's a picture of strength. It's a picture of permanence. And this is a promise that he is giving you. I'm going to make you, and again, this is imagery. I'm going to make you a pillar in the temple of my God. What does the Bible tell us that you are today as a believer in Jesus Christ? You are the temple of God now. Why? What is the temple of God? It is the place where God dwells. It is the place where God in all of his sovereignty, in all of his authority, in all of his holiness, where he meets with men and women. Me, like the almighty God, through faith in Jesus Christ, dwells within me. He is at home within me. His presence is always with me, not just in this place that we call a church building or a sanctuary, but he is always with. And again, there's this promise of future. When you look at the new, well, look at this. He shall go out no more, never going to leave his presence. I will write on him the name of my God. Talked about yesterday, you know, the name, this, this reverence that the Jews had for, for God. They wouldn't even pronounce the name of God, Yahweh, but they would just say the name. They hear uh, Jesus' name is going to be written on us. The name of his father, Jesus says, my God will be written on you. The name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. I will write on him my new name. Let's say when you look at the, again, what are you, what are you saying? When you have a name upon you, it's an identity. It's an identification. And we have his name written on. We have all of his attributes that we are clothed in and given to. Just, I mean, again, just sit in those first few that we sat in this morning. His holiness, his truth, and his authority. Upon you for all eternity because he makes us one with him. The very last encouragement, well, the very last words in Ezekiel's prophecy... The last chapters give this description of a new city, the new Jerusalem, gives a description of this, this new temple. A lot of the description and interpretation, we think it's dealing with the millennium kingdom, not necessarily the eternal new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. Maybe it could be both. It's kind of, you sit in it and eh, it's probably both. The very last words of Ezekiel says that the name of this city is the Lord is there. But just think about that as in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Right now, you have a name on you, the name of the new Jerusalem right now and ultimately in the future. And what is that name? What does that identifying mark say upon you? The almighty God who created the heavens and the earth who became a man, 
just like you, who showed us his holiness, who showed us his grace, who showed us his truth, who showed us his love, who sacrificed himself as the sacrificial lamb, which delivers from sin, which delivers from slavery, which delivers from death, who rose again from the dead because he is worthy, who ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of his father, the one who is coming quickly. That man, that being, that God is in you. That title, that banner is over you. The, the high priest in the Old Testament, he wore a crown. And the crown said, holiness to the Lord. An identifying mark. You have a crown on your head that declares God's holiness. You have a crown on your head that declares to you, he has granted to you his holiness and his purity. It is so freeing. He says that all of, all of those who reject me, they're going to come before you one day and, and they're going to bow down in recognition that I love you. The Lord is always with you. You have upon you the banner, the Lord is here. Are you weak or are you strong? Man, that, that, those, are, those are powerful words to me. It removes all complaining and instills into me just great hope and adoration. So, fathers, we turn our attention. Not that our attention has left you this morning in your word. But we turn our attention to, to responding to you. to confessing, being in agreement with who you declare yourself to be, we repeat those words back to you. God, you are holy. You are true. You have all authority. Your name is greater than all names. You are coming in all of your glory, in all of your power, in all of your authority, in all of your wrath, in all of your love, you are coming. We want to give you thanks for your love. As we turn to worship and turn to communion, Jesus, we remember your body. Thank you for Greg yesterday, Lord, just giving us the reminder that as Jesus sat down at this supper with his disciples, with his followers, with his students, so this, this bread that is broken, this, this bread represents my body that was striped. It was brutally whipped. It was given freely so that our sins could be removed. We remember who you are and we remember what you've done. 
As we think about your blood, Lord, it turns us right back to Passover, that as the blood of the lamb was applied to these households, that death passed over because death has no authority over me because your blood has been applied to me. It's a symbol, Lord, of your promise, your new promise, your new covenant that you have taken out of me a heart of darkness, a heart of stone, a heart of sin, and you've given to me a heart of flesh, a heart of holiness, a heart of truth, a place where you dwell within me daily, Lord, through your spirit, you speak. As we're sitting in the rain and all of its imagery, Lord, we ask for that latter rain to come. Produce your fruit within us. Refresh us. Satisfy the thirst that we have in this wilderness of a world. Thank you for the promises that you've given to us, Lord, that we are strong in you. Thank you for your word that you've given to us. Thank you, Lord, for the confidence that we have in your name. Thank you for the encouragement that you give to us to persevere. Thank you for the promise that you give to us that not only do we have victory now, but victory for all eternity over everything that stands in opposition to you. We love you. We worship you. We're thankful and we're humble. And we shall love you with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. We will love our brothers and our sisters as we love ourselves. And we will love the lost, Lord, even if they curse us. We'll seek for them to be blessed in the name of Jesus so that they will know you and inherit the same promises that we have today. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.